Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we intently read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are attempts to turn a story about murder, hauntings, and Munchausen by proxy into a marketable product for children. Little tykes who are fortunate enough to crack a novelization will be treated to beloved childhood topics like marital infidelity and the crushing weight of regret that can follow a person to and beyond their grave. Simultaneously, this young reader will be protected from adult topics like swearing and being drunk, lest they become disturbed. These books take a massive twist, which is successful on camera only because the editing and acting make it so, and instead drop breadcrumbs via prose that are so large they could be bread slices. In the end, though, it makes sense that the protagonist doesn't pick up on the breadcrumbs, as he never gets hungry, as he has a dead tummy. <laughs> Novelizations, while perhaps unnecessary, deftly capture the heart-wrenching tone of a beautiful film. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Marco. The Sixth Sense is a 1999 American supernatural psychological thriller directed by M. Night Shyamalan. It stars Bruce Willis as Malcolm Crow, a psychotherapist for children who experiences an attempt on his life at the hands of a former patient. Crow is subsequently consumed by guilt over failing this man, resulting in the erosion of his self-worth and marriage. He takes on new client Cole Sear, Haley Joel Osment, a young boy who believes he receives messages from specters of the dead. In working with Cole, Malcolm hopes to make peace with the unfinished business that recently has become his entire existence. The novelization of The Sixth Sense was written by Peter Larangis, based on a screenplay by M. Night Shyamalan. It was published by Scholastic Inc. in March 2000. Who is Peter Larangis? Peter Larangis is the son of a retired New York telephone company employee and a retired public elementary school secretary who raised him in Freeport, New York. This is from his website. In high school, Peter was a band kid, marching band, jazz band, concert band, until a friend told him the girls in the chorus were better looking. I think that attitude comes across in the book, unfortunately. Uh, he thus discovered singing, an affliction that was to last the rest of his life. Peter majored in biochemistry in college for reasons completely unknown. He also sang a cappella with the Harvard Crocodiles and became the, their musical director and went on to appear as a very convincing old man, once again, very convincing, those are his words, in a production of the musical Cabaret. Um, for the listener, when I'm talking about the Harvard Crocodiles, picture the word crocodile, and then everywhere you think there's a C, baby, there's a K. <laughs> After college, Peter found work as a paralegal in a Wall Street law firm and enrolled, and enrolled in law school. But a summer singing waiter job on Nantucket Island somehow convinced him to pursue a career in musical theater instead. Between acting jobs, he was a waiter at a fancy New York steakhouse, but was fired for biting his fingernails, a habit he strangely claims is common to Harvard alums. <laughs> he replaced this employment with copy editing, which he says he lied his way into, presumably by bluffing credentials. Several years later, he was a full-time author, largely making his bones in the early days by writing film novelizations. Larangis is primarily known for his work in children's and young adult fiction. He is best known for creating the Seven Wonders series, which centers on a group of explorers which must retrieve a magic orb from each of the seven wonders of the world. Larangis has a big personality as part of his author persona. 
His website prominently features a video in which he has a rap battle with a version of himself dressed as Jules Verne, which ends with, I kid you not, them deciding that, I know who wins, all you readers. Larangis is married to musician Tina DeVaron, and they have two sons. So today on Authorized, I think for the first time we have two guests with us. Okay, I have confirmation. Uh, so first off, returning guest uh, from, of course, the Battleship episode, uh, John Goodman is back with us. How are you today, John? Hi, everybody. Doing good. Glad to be uh, back on Authorized. Uh, had a good time reading The Sixth Sense. Yeah, and I, I don't want to jump into the conversations just yet, but uh, a little tease. You had, what, no experience with this movie prior to No, I actually, this book? I did not, uh, <laughs> did not see, end up seeing it, uh, but I have read the book cover to cover. Had a great time. Uh, so, you know, I know it's Bruce Willis. I know it's Haley Joel Osment. There were a few glossy color photos in the middle of the novelization. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, no no experience with the film. Wonderful. Um, and joining us today, uh, a guest we have not had before, uh, the UK correspondent for the QAnon Anonymous podcast, as well as the author of uh, Vaccine, The Human Story, uh, a podcast that I uh, personally enjoy very much. Uh, Dr. Annie Kelly. Annie, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really exciting to be on a podcast talking about horror movies instead of anti-vaxxers and QAnon and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it's partially very different from your normal fare, but there is sort of a tinge of the uh, conspiracy mindset to every M. Night Shyamalan film, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. And also, I think, yeah, um, horror movies just themselves. Although, I don't know, maybe, is The Sixth Sense a horror movie? Or is it more like a supernatural movie or a ghost story, perhaps? But I think generally horror movies um, are one of the biggest influences on, like, I guess, propaganda um, itself. So, you know, um, when you try and play on people's fears and anxieties, you quite often just, like, reach for the language of horror movies because everyone's familiar with it and science fiction and things like that. So I think there is a link there. Tenuous, but there is one. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Now, you uh, were the one who selected this novelization uh, when I directed you to just like a a giant list of them. So what is your um, relationship to The Sixth Sense, the film? My relationship to this movie is that I saw it a little bit later than everyone else. I didn't see it when I was in the cinema. Um, uh, But I was aware of the twist, or at least I thought I was aware of the twist. Because somewhere along the way, I had got it confused in my head and thought that the little boy, Haley Joel Osmond, was the one who was dead the whole time. Oh, interesting. So <laughs> I was watching it for the first time at about 14 or 15, just like, ha, huh, okay, well, you know, it's a shame that I know the ending, um, but I'm kind of interest- intrigued to see how they're going to, like, show that this little boy has been, has been dead throughout it all. Um, and was becoming increasingly confused uh, because he clearly didn't just... There didn't seem to be any clues whatsoever. Um, and as it turns out, the, the reason there were no clues was because all the clues were that Bruce Willis was the one who was dead the whole time. Um, sorry for spoiling it for anyone who... Yeah, this is a spoilers podcast, right? 
Yeah. Wow. Yes. Great. <laughs> I would say it would be insane if we hosted a podcast where we required guests to like watch a movie and read a book or have watched a movie and then be like, but we can only discuss the first half, of course. <laughs> yeah. And also, I feel like the book itself, the actual novelization, just comes right out the gate with it. It's got I see dead people on the cover. Yeah. So, I oh, mean, true. Yeah. Yeah. Very so you little. sort of think that for the whole sort of first few chapters where they, you know, sort of saying, you know, oh, what could this little boy's problem be? You know, they're sort of, they're very kind of coy about it that something's, something's up with him, something's not right, but they won't tell mm-hmm. you what. But it's right there on the cover, which I, I, I think was a betrayal of the author's, author's clear intentions. Yeah. I have a theory that the reason that this twist worked so well when it came out or that it worked so well is because people saw that as the twist of the movie. The mm. fact that the kids saw dead people and two twists in a single movie is unheard of. But was that in the advertising? Was I See Dead People in the trailer? I mean, they must have advertised it as like a supernatural movie, right? I, I, don't, I don't know. I wonder. I just don't know how you would make a trailer for the sixth sense without at least giving us a little bit of there are ghosts in this movie. We could all watch a trailer. <laughs> we could. It's not a bad idea. I, I th- you know what? Andrew, can we handle that? I think that they know that you're one of these very rare people who can see them. So you need to help them. What if they don't want to help? I don't think that's the way it works. How do you know for sure? Is anyone there? that was too much yeah yeah i think maybe you could go into it wondering if the kid was legitimately like delusional Mm. i mean that trailer does not represent the film accurately in tone or content i would say like there's and beyond the fact that there's stuff in that trailer that doesn't end up happening in the movie like that trailer makes it seem like an action-packed horror thrill ride yeah yeah, the little uh, montage of him almost getting hit by cars is funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it has that scene. I don't know if you've you've all seen the deleted scene where um, Cole goes to talk to the old man he's friends with. You guys familiar with this plot line? No. no. So the Sixth Sense DVD uh, had this had like bonus features on it that I found on YouTube, where basically. Uh, M. Night is like introing deleted scenes and one of them and every single one he goes it just broke my heart to get rid of it it just broke my heart Um, and one of them is that he and uh, Crow go to see this old man that Cole knows and he's a living man and Cole's like his wife died he's very sad and he goes and finds an old diary of his wife's and gives it to the old man presumably because the dead wife told him where to find it although we're kind of seeing things from malcolm's perspective and just seeing cole do the thing without actually seeing like the specters um and then later on in the movie you know the point where uh the point where malcolm decides okay i think you need to help the ghosts i think that's the thing 
that is because he goes back and observes the old man and sees that he's much, much happier since Cole helped him out. Interesting. Not Whereas in the movie as it stands, well, I disagree kind of. In the movie as it stands, he's like, oh, these terrifying ghosts are haunting you. You should be their pal. See, I always felt like because Malcolm is himself a ghost, though he doesn't know it, part of his guidance is based in this understanding of like what he needs and what mm. Cole needs. That like it's this sort of like larger ghost concept. Does that make sense? That definitely makes because he has the he needs um, to like help the yeah. kid. Yeah. It's a better it's a better explanation. It's more satisfying, right? Yeah. That it's his purpose to guide Cole into like yeah dealing with the ghost stuff better. So that's how he just knows, as opposed to, um, yeah, as opposed to having to having to see it happen. That makes sense I don't to me. It I think needs yeah, so much like shoe leather to explain mm. like why Cole should help ghosts. Like yeah, yeah, he should help them. It makes sense. He can. He's the only person who can. That's enough for me. Oh, I've been wrong before. <laughs> I you, uh, it breaks your heart, Andrew. Andrew. I do. <laughs> Um, Going back to what Hannah said before we watched the trailer, I think that's such an important distinction that this twist, it comes after the movie ends. There is like an arc in this movie that he feels immense guilt over Donnie Wahlberg and then he ends up, uh, you know, helping this kid and getting over that guilt. And it's like, that could be the end of a riveting character piece. And then the twist is like, also, I did this fun thing. I mean, the Which, twist is thematically relevant. Like, I'm in favor of the twist. I'm happy the twist is there. I, you know, I'm not mad. Mm. Like, as some people, you know, twists happen and it's like, ah, oh, that was so stupid. It ruined the movie. Who cares? It negates the movie that came before. But this is a twist that just, like, enriches the movie that came before in a way that's very satisfying for me. And I think for many I, viewers. I agree. Um, I just think it's interesting from, like, a storytelling perspective that the story is not at all reliant on the twist, which usually when we talk about big twists, I mean, our group chat can never stop talking about Saw. And it's like, <laughs> the the twist at the end of Saw is meant to like recontextualize everything. Whereas there's a fully living, breathing movie here without the dead guy aspect. Sure. Yeah. Well, how do we yeah. feel about this book as, as a, a good, novelization? that is certainly written for children. Like, it doesn't say a junior novelization, but it is published by Scholastic, and I think we you can tell in reading it. Yeah, You, know, you right? can even tell in the glossy photos in the middle that it's highlighting the Haley Joel Osment of it all more than the Bruce Willis. These are some of the best photos we've ever had. Yeah, they're really yeah. good. <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, and it's all, like, King, it's all the King Arthur stuff is in there. Like, yeah, yeah it's a weird, it's interesting choices for the photos, I mean. There's a very like charming clunky bit where it says like he used a curse word to yep. emphasize <laughs> his point or something like that. Um, I pulled that like, up before. It's um, listen to me, Malcolm said firmly. You are not a freak. Don't believe anybody that tells you that. Malcolm used a curse, telling Cole he didn't have to grow up believing he was a freak. It's yeah, like it sounds like he's a wizard. Like we don't. Yeah, that's it. We don't because in, in the UK we don't say curse to mean. Oh, interesting. A curse to mean like a swear word. <laughs> so we really did just read like he'd like yeah just done a spell. I think the biggest hint that he's dead is when he places a hex on someone. <laughs> <laughs> I so I didn't rewatch the movie. What is the curse? That they couldn't say? He says shit. He says that's bullshit. In what context? 
Oh. <laughs> he um he does a thing in that scene that I do in my tutoring all the time, which is that I swear, and then I'm like, "You're not going to tell anybody about that, right?" <laughs> which he does to the kid. <laughs> um, the the other instance that makes it really clear that it's a meant to be a children's book is on uh, page six. He goes, uh, he's been drinking and he's talking like Dr. Seuss, right? That line, and his wife goes. Uh, you always talk a little like Dr. Seuss when you're happy, which if you watch the film, the line is you always talk a little bit like Dr. Seuss when you're drunk. <laughs> Interesting. I would Just amazing it. that they thought that was scandalous. Because it's like a, like, it's it's bloody. It's like there's some gruesome descriptions in here uh, but that would be worse than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's like descriptions of like a little boy with the back of his head blown off. And Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do we believe that because The Sixth Sense was, like, the biggest movie when it came out, because everyone couldn't stop talking about it, kids were just like, what happens in it? I need to know. And mm-hmm. thus a children's novelization? Because adults would say, like, you can't see that movie yet. You're too young. I think that makes yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah, that's incredibly... It's incredibly confusing, though. Like, what is the the reasoning behind trying to get kids to read it? Because that's what a junior novelization does is it's like trying to hook kids. Now, I, I told uh, Annie this over uh, chat when she originally picked this book, but when I was a child, I was kind of obsessed with the idea of adulthood, and I, I wanted to act like adults acted, and I needed to get my mother like a Christmas gift. So I went to the Scholastic Book Fair and picked <laughs> up The Sixth Sense by Peter Larangis. <laughs> I brought it home, so and I was like... Sweet. I think I think she found it before Christmas or something. She was like, "Why do you own this book?" And I was like, "Well, this is a very adult movie, which is to say, one I'm not allowed to watch." Right. <laughs> and in no uncertain terms, she basically said, "I think you have grossly misread my taste." <laughs> is this book P- movie PG thirteen or R? It's PG thirteen. Okay. Yeah. Because it's it's suggestive of things. Right. I mean, the Munchausen thing is spelled out in a plot way very deliberately, but it's not... As a child, you could watch and like fully not understand what was happening. Wait, I'm sorry. What the, can, you, can you elaborate a little on the, oh, the Munchausen thing? Late in the movie, when he's trying to help the girl who's throwing up. Oh, yes. Up, okay. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and he, in the movie, you see... Um, you see the mother adding whatever it is, like cleaning solution into the soup. But that's totally a thing that as a as a seven-year-old, I would watch and be like, I guess the soup was bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, what did what do we all think of the actual novelization? Like, how do we feel like this thing performs on the page? I thought it was quite charming. Um, I quite liked... I mean, I really liked the movie and I watched it again quite recently and it was one of those quite pleasant experiences where you watch something you really liked as a teenager and you're like, oh yeah, no, that's still just like a very compelling little spooky movie, do you know? Um, and I quite liked that the... I quite liked the sort of uh, aspect of reading the book where you got to have a little bit more interiority into Bruce Willis's kind of motivations and, uh, yeah, the the mother as well and sort of a little bit more of her kind of backstory with you know her being on her own with Cole since the dad left for a toll booth collector or 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that the right word? I don't, <laughs> we don't have toll booths here either. Well, we do, but they're not called that. Um, so, yeah, no, I thought I thought it was quite, quite charming. Yeah. Um, a little bit clunky at times, but again... I was quite aware when I was reading it that it was not really strictly for my age demographic. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I also really liked it. I It's like super readable and charming. And I really like that it puts Cole first. Like in the movie, it does feel like Bruce Willis is the star of the movie as he should be. And this book is all about Cole. He's like the first character we meet. So much of it is from his perspective, um, which I really liked. And it is a little clunky, yeah, but it's like charming. I got to the end, it made me cry. Like maybe I was reading it too late at night, but it really got me. (laughs) Um, And I think some of the simplicity of the language just like pinpoints things that like are in the movie, but I had never really picked up on. It just like expanded the whole thing for me in a way that I really liked. Yeah, I I totally agree with what you guys are saying. Yeah, I I had a good time reading the book. Um, I think it did a really good job like... um, having not seen the movie, I feel like it, there were moments where it was like, oh, I can tell that this was like a nice acting moment. And you're like conveying that effectively through writing, which I thought was really, is like a nice thing in a novelization. Um, I feel like there was some clunkiness with like being from the three characters' perspectives. Like sometimes the voice would shift and I would be sort of um, thrown off. Like it would go from being the mom talking about her past and stuff. And then it would be like describing another kid. And it's like, he had those holes in his face that the grownups called dimples. It's like very much in a, kid, a kid voice. Um, but uh, yeah, overall, I mean, like it was a, I, I came into it expecting a different story than, than it was. I expected more what the trailer was. Cause I, I was very aware of the movie. I knew the twist, but I hadn't seen it. Um, and uh yeah, I was surprised it takes uh, like halfway through to get to I see dead people and to get to finding out what um, that finding out that there is like a supernatural element to all this. I thought that was uh, that was cool. Good story. I think it really speaks to how like the important thread that goes through the whole book or the whole movie is the, those two characters like arcs like it's about redemption for Malcolm and it's about like this feeling of being freed for Cole and M. Night Shyamalan is just really good about realizing that even though he's doing a genre piece, he has to set it up like it's sort of a quiet character piece. And then once we're invested in them, then the genre trappings all come in, mm-hmm. um, which is which is kind of an exciting way to write. I, I, or, I, I thought Peter Larangis did a really good job with interiority when he did interiority. Mm-hmm. And now he very politely declined to speak with me. But... Um, <laughs> I would have been interested to know like how much leeway he had with this book because when he does um, go into the the internal monologue of c- the non-main characters, mm-hmm. he is really good with it. So like on page five, really early on, he's talking about, um, or he's he's talking sort of from the perspective of Anna, the the wife. Anna saw them as inner and outer people. As Malcolm was dedicated to the minds deepest mysteries Anna was dedicated to its artistic expression her antique gallery was small but it had a growing reputation she'd save some of her best work for their house restoring every detail the dark polish of the wainscoted wooden floors the fiery facets of the crystal foyer chandelier the delicate coziness of the Persian rugs Malcolm refused to call it a restoration he called it anatomic reconstruction he's getting a lot of work done just in that one paragraph where he's saying their opposites, the fact that their opposites 
makes them work well together. And he's also saying she does her best work in our own home, which speaks to her undying loyalty, which he is sort of failing to recognize throughout the whole book. So I, I feel like when Loran just decides to do something new, which feels very seldom to me, he just masterfully is like, I fully get this movie. And, and my prose will, will illustrate that. Like, everything I say will have two different meanings, kind of thing. Andrew, you alluded to in the intro that you think the way in which the twist is sort of revealed in the book, mm-hmm. I believe you likened it, not the bread comes, but the bread slices. So I, I want to open this up to the, the rest of the group. How do you think, you know, without the kind of editing of a film, how do you think the whole Bruce Willis being dead twist was in the book? Did you think they were working too hard to push, to try to hide it or what? I think it's very hard to divorce the story once you know the twist. Like it's very hard to watch it with fresh eyes because every time like watching the movie, it's like, well, he doesn't touch the chair. He's never opening doors. Like, you know, you notice all these things Mm -hmm. in a way that it's very hard to like get rid of. So in the book, I actually was like, there's no clues at all. (laughs) Like Mm. those sort of like little unspoken things are not, I didn't find to be like highlighted in the book at all. It's mostly like he's a character who's going about his day. There are moments in hindsight where like he can't get into the basement and then he's in the basement because he's a ghost and he can walk through doors if he, you know, chooses to or whatever. Um, But it didn't, it didn't feel like heavy breadcrumb laying to me at all. So I am really curious over B, like, what stood out to you? It was stuff like uh, the first clue I have here is on page 14. He's just been shot uh, by Vincent. And then the next page is just like, it seemed like no time had passed at all. Mm-hmm. It's just, they, he keeps using um, mm. phrases, Larangis, to, to basically say he's not really here. But because it's in text, it comes off as much more blatant to me. Yeah, there's a bit also, I think, where it says... Um, when he goes to, he's late for the anniversary dinner with his wife and it said something like, she said, happy anniversary, but it seemed as if she looked right through him and you're just a bit like, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't notice that one. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> it also doesn't make sense because while ghosts are famously see-through, we know he's an opaque ghost. No, not to what only feel the sixth that? sense. Yeah. Okay, fair. Oh, are you Normal trying to make about like he's opaque about his own situation? Like he's mentally opaque? Was that what you were trying to do? No, I just mean you can't see through him, but thanks for thinking <laughs> I was smarter. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, you can record a ghost, though. What was that moment about? Uh, is that in the movie? Where the, the, uh, yeah. the recording with Vincent? Uh, the tape. Um, yeah. That feels weird that you, they feel like they shouldn't pick up on tape. I don't know. That doesn't matter, but <laughs> I noticed it. Did Vincent just never open up to him about seeing ghosts? It confused me that when Cole brings it up, uh, Malcolm's like, oh, this is crazy. Vincent never said anything like this, but then he discovers essentially that that was what Vincent was dealing with. I thought that was very confusing. Yeah, but uh, I think, yeah, it it sort of seemed as if he had um, really made the effort essentially with Cole that he never did with Vincent to make... Cole trust him enough to tell him which I do feel like they got across quite really well here with having a bit more of um, Bruce Willis's internal monologue 
you can really get that sense that he's really trying to get him to trust him in a sense because he doesn't want to fail him like he failed Vincent but yeah no I think it's it's unspoken I think in the film whether Vincent ever said it to him before but it of course makes sense that he probably shouldn't have said it to him because otherwise he it would he would have to sort of say this sounds like the, my other patient yes exactly that's why I assume he didn't because mm. Mm. otherwise he'd be like it's Vincent all over again how long term was his relationship with Vincent because he struggles to remember him at first when he shows up in the bathroom so is it su- is it supposed to be someone he saw infrequently or in sort of a group setting or is this like a long-term patient I got the impression that Vincent is a kid he's had some sessions with and was like oh this kid has schizophrenia or whatever I'm gonna hand him off to another psychiatrist who right. can handle it? And that was the wrong move. Uh, and then Vincent never got the help he needed and really had a hard time growing up. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that was in his like hotshot child therapist getting awards from the mayor yeah. days. Like, I think, um, yeah, I think you, you guys are, are right that it's, yeah, um, it's this is the point is this is like him growing as a character uh, and being different yeah. with. Uh, uh, with Cole than he was with Vincent. I think the book is really good about that, actually, that it makes it Mm -hmm. so clear that he's often like, oh, well, I think this is probably a mood disorder. No, wait a second. I really need to spend more time on Cole because the last time I did this with Vincent, it really backfired and I couldn't. Yeah. Like, I think the book is really good about like repeating that concept of like, I can't rush to a conclusion this time. I really need to listen to him. I was actually disappointed to remember because I rewatched the movie first and I, I had forgotten that the guy that shot him, Vincent, had basically been suffering from the same ailment as Cole. Yeah. It sort of cheapens things for me a little bit. Because I I always thought of The Sixth Sense since I saw it for the first time only like a year ago. I I always thought of it as like this story about a guy who fails someone in one way and finds redemption in a different story which I think is how actual life works, where it's like I do something terrible to someone, as I often do, and then like when I get the chance to redeem myself, it's not going to be in a situation that's completely one-to-one. Sure. So the idea that it like was literally the same problem that Vincent was having, it actually took away from the story a little bit for me. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I guess it would yeah, work fine if it wasn't... Yeah, I know what you mean. It, it's it's very neat. But as you say, actually, the whole point of him being dead is this really is the only child he can help now. Um, right. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact same condition. Um, but then maybe it would have just become a bit too... It would have become a bit too sh- stranded across two sort of poles almost of psychiatry and mental health and the supernatural. Sure. Oh, yeah. totally. If it was just like, I'm, let me help this kleptomaniac child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that redeemed yeah. me. I mean, at least he hasn't gone back to the Sixth Sense universe like he has with Unbreakable. And that was so. I'd be interested. End I'd of- be curious. I would. I would love to watch a movie about grown-up Cole helping ghosts. Yeah, like, yeah. I'd watch that movie. <laughs> I like the mechanics of like the afterlife that's set up in the Sixth Sense, and like. I even now that I'm thinking about it, like the thing with the tape recorder, it's like they they can touch things sometimes. They can move things around. So like it is kind of cool that they're I don't know, they're like 
um, I just think it's it's well handled what the rules are. Um, it's it's interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he breaks a whole window when he thinks his wife's flirting with that that grad student. I mean, I think she may have been. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I was going to say when he thinks when he thinks she's yeah. flirting, but like in an in an adultery sense rather than a grieving widow sense. Um, how's that performance in the film? Because that's such an interesting. Like that's right at the crux of the twist. Like she's always playing sort of two right, roles you, at so once. You know it's you know it's Bruce and Haley Joel, but do you know anyone else who's in the movie? Uh, no, I I don't, but. <laughs> The mum is Tony Collette, yeah, doing a a stellar performance. Yeah, so good, yeah. Was she nominated for that? I believe she was nominated. I know she didn't win. Yeah. Um. And then, of as I said before, Vincent is Donnie Wahlberg. Um, He's great, but unrecognizably great Donnie Wahlberg. Like you would not know it's Donnie Wahlberg if you saw the movie. Uh, going back to the 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 wife, I there was something I wanted to say earlier when uh, Annie was talking about the anniversary thing, which is Loran just kind of falls into a trap with the anniversary scene, which is like he is like I said trying to take cin- like cinematic clues and translate them into text, and when she leaves the anniversary and she says happy anniversary and she walks off, it's this great performance moment where she does it in such a way that is grieving but because we don't know what's going on it reads as uh, she detests him or she's angry with him and in the book she says or the book says Anna waited until he was finished before standing up happy anniversary she said bitterly walking away which feels a little bit like a betrayal of like how prose works Mm-hmm. Because instead of there being any ambiguity to it, he is telling us that it's infused with bitterness. Well, I mean, not to, I hate to be a jerk about you, Overby, but I do think like when we get to the end, the reveal moment of the twist where she's like, why did you leave me? Why did you do this? Like she is bitter that he's dead. Like she's mad at him for leaving her, even though like that's, you know, irrational grief stuff, but people feel that way. Like that bitterness to me, like that's what makes that moment work in the movie is that she is bitter with grief and bitter that he missed their anniversary. Like those two things work really mm. nicely in tandem. Hey, you know what? I'm like fully convinced by that. <laughs> <laughs> really well put. Yeah. And the novelization does say a lot about how she doesn't really like love the work that he's doing because she finds that he's both being kind of sapped dry by it, but also it's dangerous work. So that bitterness makes sense is if you didn't have this career, you would be alive. Yeah. 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 And that conflict over him spending all of his attention on his career and not on her, like that is genuine, a genuine conflict in their marriage. That's not all just like misdirection. So I feel like that, that works. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, uh, ever lost anyone. So I actually don't really believe in death. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm I'm very interested in that character though the the wife because I, I do think um, like that to me is what makes the twist so fun. Um, like uh, even you know knowing it the whole time because it is so well known. Like um, just like getting to look back on all the little stuff where it's like oh I see two things were happening at once there. Like it's a it's a very fun little puzzle. I think um, 
like this kind of gets lumped in with the the general idea of like oh M Night Shyamalan like he's he's known for crazy twists that don't make sense but it's like no I think it's actually at least based on um, you know Peter Lorre Andres he uh, he's doing it really well um, and it I feel I feel like it fits together nicely I had, I had a lot of fun with that I feel like this um, speaking of M Night who's great this is such a like loving representation of what he does well I think that his dialogue is clunky. His themes are a little heavy sometimes, but he's so earnest and heartfelt. Like, I don't know if you guys read the interview with him in the back of the book. Yeah, yeah. Which is wonderful. And there are so many points where he's like, you know, I think this is really interesting and I really wanted to use it. And, uh, you know, he's just so earnest and heartfelt. Like, the twist is not in any way like a, a ploy or a grab at something, you know, what's the word? Um, Help me out. Gimmicky. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah. it's clear that he was like, this is the heart of the movie. It's important. I feel that it is good and worth it. Um, and it is. It works, I think, because it has his heart behind it. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I think his early movies like this, Unbreakable Signs, the twists, especially Signs is kind of a clunky twist, but you care about the that family. Mm, so you're yeah. like, I'm more involved. I don't even care that there is a twist. I'm just happy that this family unit heals and mends. Yeah. And that's more important than the fact that there are aliens and they are adverse to water. <laughs> and what he loses as he goes on is sometimes the twist becomes more central than the characters. Like the happening yeah. suffers because you don't care about Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're just left with a twist that's just whatever also like I think we use the word twist too aggressively with him <laughs> like the mm-hmm. sixth sense has mm-hmm. a twist signs has a reveal the village has a reveal and then a it twist has multiple reveals yeah, yeah. Good yeah. Point. Good so point. like there's no in the new one has no twist the new what old. the new Shyamalan old. it has a has, reveal I wouldn't call it a, it a twist yeah yeah um and I, you know, I feel like he got a lot of scuff for doing too many twists. But I, I know I don't think he is doing too many twists. He just structures his movie in a way that you don't get all the information in the first half hour, which doesn't yeah, matter. Right, me. which which happens a lot with movies. Yeah, it's, yeah. I'm a defender. I'm a big M Night defender. So <laughs> I'm gonna get that on the table. Well, I did just watch Split for the first time yesterday, oh. and that was truly dire. <laughs> had you seen unbreakable i had yeah and i did know you know through through word of mouth that there was going to be some reveal where the two the two were to mm-hmm. be connected um but no i thought it was i think it was just very disappointing i thought the problem i always have with um multiple personality movies is that they always seem to me to be like a an actor somewhere showing off you know, mm-hmm. that's like largely yes. just what it's to do. It's just for an actor to show off, like, look how many different different people I can be. Um, but then I almost thought, like, it actually didn't do enough of that. If Like, that's the point of a multiple personality movie. And then I sort of thought that actually they didn't even really give James McAvoy enough, enough like, room to really show off. Do you know? He was only, mm-hmm. like, two or three different characters, really. Mm-hmm. Would you be thrilled to know that in the sequel instead of like revisiting the characters he already is they just reveal more personalities uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I basically agree with you I, I especially with that performance I think with 
multiple personalities when he's doing things that are so wildly different it comes off as like play acting yeah like it'd be interesting to see a multiple personality movie where you're seeing like all the different types of characters Al Pacino has played. <laughs> where they're like all the same man, but some of them are like brutal and some of them are like deeply sad. And you know, like, but when it's McAvoy just being like, this one's an old man and this one's a little kid. Yeah. It's like- <laughs> I mean, speaking speaking of Tony Collette, you think of her show, if you've seen it, The United States of Terra is a much more nuanced look of what you're kind of talking about where there are more similarities than they are just completely distinct people who may as well be different people totally totally i would argue that what works for split for me is because you get the twist at the end that it exists in the unbreakable universe and therefore the movie you just watched was a comic book it's Mm -hmm. not set in reality it's set in a comic book world and therefore like the fact that multiple personalities don't work that way um that there he's doing like real out there character nonsense, which I agree. I don't think is a great show of what he's capable of. Like I, I totally agree with, with that. Uh, for me, I was just like, Oh, I don't have to be mad about the portrayal of mental illness because he's a comic book villain. So it like broke the reality for me in a way that made it better. And then glass is also just like full comic book hoot nanny. Um, very earnest, very heartfelt, super silly big M. Night energy. <laughs> Has everyone here who's going to see Glass seen Glass? Because I would love to just briefly mention the ending of that movie. Yes. When at the the villain uh, of that movie, Sarah Paulson, uh, like, wins. And then she and every, all the good guys are dead. And then at the end, she realizes that... Not just that the good guys. All of the characters All the characters, dead. except, like, her, are dead. And, and then Willis' son... He, he makes it. Oh, yes. Not Hilly sure, Joel Osment. fair. Yeah. Um, Bruce Willis famously uh, gets drowned in a puddle. And um, <laughs> then at the end of the movie, Sarah Paulson goes to a comic book store for some reason. And she discovers that there's going to be a twist in the movie she's in. <laughs> because somebody reading a comic book is, is like, don't you know? There's always a twist. And she's like, oh, no. I'm in a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> Just to... Just to circle it back to the sixth sense, like the thing in glass, the thing in glass is that you have to believe it. Like you can have superpowers if you believe that about yourself Uh. or whatever. Right. And the sixth sense is also like you have to believe, like you have to listen to people and believe what they tell you. Some magic is real. Believe in it, engage with it, and you can make your life better. Mm -hmm. You know, you can move on to the afterlife or stop being scared of all the ghosts in your life. They become your friends who like help you get ready for the play. Which is lovely. Like, that sentiment, I think, is really lovely. I loved, speaking of the play, the way that Loran just fleshed out um, how Cole knows about his teacher being stuttering Stanley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, In I the movie, that. it's just like, he calls him stuttering Stanley. You kind of figure out, oh, a ghost must have told him that. And then in the book, they're like, yeah, it was like the woman who ran the theater program before him. And she told Cole that, but she actually really wanted the stuttering teacher to like improve. And she felt like theater did help his speech a lot. It's just a lot of great backstory. I like that he has other positive relationships to ghosts, I guess is what I'm really getting at there. That this is not some some outlier is, Mm -hmm. is really interesting. 
some ghosts are nice and some ghosts have a lot of rage they have to work through. Yeah. And they are scary. But like yeah. they're fundamentally nice. I feel like at the it's like the the idea is that all of them can be nice, uh which I think is a nice. Like it's a cool yeah, I feel like that's sort of the theme of it is that like yeah, once you get to understand any of them, they don't want to hurt you. Uh, which you know, some you could have written ghosts, so it's like no, some of them are some of them are bad ghosts. Uh, but that doesn't yeah, doesn't happen. Yeah, that seems here. to be what the the trailer is almost playing with. Right, mm-hmm. the trailer is making you think that the whole point is that these ghosts are not going to be nice, and Bruce Willis is naive for for thinking they are. Um, which yeah, I guess would have just been a different movie. Yeah. <sighs> I feel like that's a case of them trying to get butts in seats, right? <laughs> They're trying to be like, it's a horror movie, it's a horror movie, and then you get in in the chair, and the movie's like, actually, like, you know, life is very hard, and we have to live with what we've done. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah especially considering this is his third film. The first one was essentially a student film that no one saw, and then he made, like, a movie about a kid in a catholic school like it's not no one knew who this director was he had no credentials Mm -hmm. so they really had to use the trailer to sell it to people it's a really interesting uh inversion of how like new filmmakers will often do horror because it's easy to do low budget and there's Mm -hmm. always a market like people are always trying to watch horror movies it's so clever to as an unknown director make something that's easily marketed as horror and then reveals itself to be a completely different thing. Yeah. And it is scary. Like, I do think it's scary. There's scary elements. Some of the ghosts mm. are scary. Um, and that it has a richer heart just speaks to, like, he's a good filmmaker. He knows what he's doing. He's capable of doing both. Yeah, I was expecting more of the, like, I was surprised it took so long to get to the point where um, Malcolm knows what Cole's deal is. He knows he sees ghosts and he knows that ghosts are real and they're working together to go around helping ghosts. Um, like I was kind of expecting that to be the story. And as I was reading, I was like, I, I did really like that part. And that's like, um, Andrew, when you joke like, oh, he, he might return to the sixth sense universe. You know, I'd watch I'd watch more of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I just was surprised that, yeah, it takes a long time for um Cole to open up about what his problem is. Uh, and then it takes a while for Malcolm to be like, uh, to be on board. Um, it's just, yeah, it's really, um, it takes its time in a way that I think works. Yeah. Then they help one ghost and you're like, Oh, this works. We've completed the film. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the thing with the girl uh, who's being Munchausen is like so interesting because it's a movie about, I feel like extreme empathy, right? Like you're being like, I, all of these ghosts are just people who are hurting. Um, but then that plot goes out of its way to go, okay, well, we're going to help this ghost, but in exposing an out-and-out villain. Yeah, that was weird to me, actually. Mm-hmm. That struck me as like, whoa, this is like a very extreme thing to be happening. And like everyone in the party kind of like turns on the mom and is like looking at her with disgust. And it's like, oh. Wow. Correctly. I, I mean, yes. She killed yes. her daughter and but is now I, poisoning her other daughter. But that's wild. She's a more great. There's just like a murderer in the, in here out of nowhere. Like, I mean, I understand that like Munchausen by proxy is like a disease. Like it's you know like a. Mm. It's not just like maliciousness. Like people, the people who do that do it out of like a misplaced something or other. I don't want to speak to it. I'm not a psychiatrist, but 
even so, like in this circumstance, the justice for Misha Barton is that her little sister isn't going to go through the same thing. So she's mm-hmm. able to move on. Yeah, it's not just like pure vengeance on the villain. It's, yeah, um, yeah, it's a, it's a rescue narrative as well. I'm coming to realize that, uh, the, that the sixth sense uh, basically is this joke I used to do when I was doing stand-up, which I used to talk about how I, I want to be a ghost <laughs> whose unfinished business is business. <laughs> Like, like going <laughs> like, like to I the office. <laughs> yeah, like I come back and I'm like, and and they're like, why are you haunting me? And I'm like, we we still have to get the Keller account, <laughs> which is kind of his deal. Like, it's so Bruce Willis's so character. Different. Yeah, yeah, it's so different from a normal ghost story to have his worth is so tied to his job that his sense of fulfillment is if i can like do the platonic ideal of what it is to to help a child Mm -hmm. that will sort of release me (laughs) but it's not true because he doesn't that isn't his final business and in fact like um the little boy even says to him you know sort of hinting a little i guess at him you know what's the one thing that you really want and he says i want to make up with my wife um and the little boy sort of although Bruce Willis doesn't know it the little boy is you know telling him um is doing for him what he's done for the other ghosts and he says you know go and go and chat to her while she's sleeping and that's his moment of resolution so I agree but it's almost as if he has two he has two parts of unfinished business one which is the kind of guilt over letting down one of his patients but also for the guilt of kind of letting down his wife or not letting his wife know essentially while they were alive that she never came second. And that that's why that has to be the ending of the movie, right? Because that's where he... But doesn't it make more sense for him to admit that he was putting her second than to assert that he was doing the right thing? That That bothered me a little bit. I think um, it doesn't bother me because men are bad at communicating. So even, <laughs> even in ghosthood. Yeah. So even though like <laughs> in his heart, she was first, um, he never, you know, he never like, he did put his job in front of their time together, but he never cared about his job more than he cared about her mm. is how he feels about it. And he was unable to communicate that to her when he was alive. And so she feels that he put her second. And so he has to say it to her so that she knows it, and she, he can only do that, you know, when she's sleeping as a ghost. Yeah, I uh, emotionally it works for me, actually. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, Overby, but yeah, she wasn't she wasn't hurt like by the physical lack of time together. She was hurt essentially by what she thought it represented. Mm. Yeah, right. it is interesting though that he is. I mean, like. Uh, that he is a you know a, a, a ghost whose unfinished business is his business. Like he comes back and he he is spending all his ghost time at work uh, with a patient. Um, but I think that yeah, I had I had sort of forgotten that the final moment of him ascending or whatever is yeah is a moment with his wife. Is that then the fact that he's like at work the whole time? Is that just like part of the roadblock he still needs to get over? Like he's still just like manifesting his problems in life, like. I don't know. I, I guess that's that's interesting uh, to me. I'm not or sure. Does, yeah, or does Cole, like, need to help him? Do you know? Yeah, I think it's, like, both. Like, he needs ghosts, that resolution from Cole. To... Yeah. The ghosts seem to know that they can go to Cole. 
right? That like he is someone mm-hmm. who can see them and help them. And so like Malcolm is drawn to him both because like he knows in his mind that Cole exists and is drawn to him because he knows Cole can help him on a subconscious ghost level. And then he also gets to like resolve his work trauma with failing Vincent Gray. Like all of that is so smart, I think. Mm-hmm. Like it all works so well for me. Yeah, and I do feel like maybe I'm misremembering the movie, but I do feel like that's an addition that the book did saying that, you know, Cole's mother had already booked an appointment with him before he died, which mm-hmm. I didn't actually think was all that necessary. Yeah. Um, to me, sort of part of the kind of sort of spooky charm of the film is kind of how Bruce Willis does just show up, do you know? Um, yeah. And as you say, Hannah, that is just what all the ghosts do. They just sort of are drawn to him. And so it always felt like a quite a nice little touch to me that, Bruce Willis thinks that he's his patient. Um, but I mean, presumably, I always thought like, although it did make a point of saying he went to private school, so maybe, but I always sort of thought a bit like, you know, how would Tony Collette even be able to afford, you know, such a such a high profile therapist and all the rest? And the book even says that because obviously you mentioned there's that added prologue that introduces Cole and his mother. Uh, but the first line of chapter one is, in Center City, Philadelphia about one mile and a couple of tax brackets away from the Sears neighborhood. So they are saying, you know, they are mm. in more dire straits financially than this successful psychiatrist would be. There's some line, too, about how she scrimped and saved, and which it, the question just because it becomes, is that believable for the Do we level know what she of does? I financial hardship she's having? What's her profession? I don't know that they state what her three jobs are. Mm-hmm. Is it a private school in the movie? Or is that just... Yeah. I mean, they're at least wearing uniforms. Yeah, they're in, like, like a coat and tie, which... I mean, I also have to think, like, both private schools, and that's, like, maybe a Catholic school, and psychiatrists have some sort of allowance for, like, people who don't have the means. Like, charitable giving is part of both of that. But, like, she's scraping together as much as she can, and then they say, like, that's fine. Your child is obviously troubled. (laughs) We will help him. And M. Night Shyamalan also went to a private catholic school in philadelphia so he may just be pulling from this is my experience he shot his last movie before this at his own elementary school so i think he just like Mm. enjoys or understands that lifestyle the same way that andrew and i who went to the same private school we are andrew and i are currently recording this podcast from the campus of the high school that we (laughs) attended wearing our little coat and ties walking around that might make more sense to us in making a film than an inner city public school or something. I guess it's just funny that he sort of bends over backwards to go. And I'm telling a story about uh, basically an impoverished uh, mm-hmm. family, and but I must have it at a private school because write what you know. <laughs> yeah. um, bending over backwards is a good way to describe some of the writing here. They're like, I, I think kind of in a good way, in a good way. I mean, like, I that's like a, su- a successful contortionist. Um, I'm just thinking about the challenge of um, this psychiatrist uh, is meeting with this child and he can never speak to the mom and they can't acknowledge or address each other. Like the weird limitations that the twist places on the writing, um, it must've been very challenging. And does that come across in the film? Like when he shows up, is it like, who is this weirdo? Or is it just like skillfully done that you're like, Oh yeah, they must've, he must've had a conversation with the mom off screen. 
It's quite skillfully done, I remember. It always felt as if you would just come in on them just after they'd spoken. And now they were just kind of sat in a like sort of comfortable silence, a lull in the conversation, do you know? So you never really notice, I think, uh, that they're not talking to one another until um, until you watch it a second time, really. Because mm-hmm. films can do that, right? They can make it seem as if they've just entered mid-conversation or entered sort of after all of the hi, how are yous, you know, mm-hmm. um, can I come in and wait for Cole and that kind of stuff. I think that uh, the way they shoot that scene where he's just like sitting there, it does seem like a lull in the conversation. And I think it would be basically impossible to predict the twist if you hadn't heard of it somehow. But it's a perfect twist in that once it's revealed, all of those scenes seem incredibly odd. Yeah, yeah. Especially the wife watching the wedding video over and over again. It's like your wife, who you've become incredibly distant to, is is like addicted to watching your wedding video. Those two things don't totally square. That. The the piece of interiority of the book where he's like, where Malcolm is thinking like maybe she's trying to rediscover what she loved about me when we got married. I was like, ah, I mean, of course that makes sense. Yeah. That's a great reason. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Like the, the twist version of the story. Like I agree with what you were saying earlier, Overbeard. That like you could cut out the twist and it would still be a functional movie. But like I like that that movie's not as good. Like it's just it makes a little bit less yes. sense. It's a little bit less interesting. Like everything's just a little off in ways that you sort of accept as the tone of the story. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I like that the twist is, like, not only, oh, that also makes sense, but, like, that makes more sense. I feel like that's that's really well handled. It makes six sense. Oh. It sure does. It makes hey, six hey, times uh-huh. the sense. Sad, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. uh, do we think M. Night was involved in sort of the development of this novelization given that he's sort of that he's interviewed in the back of <laughs> interviewed it. by himself seemingly i imagine he must have had a lot of oversight because he yeah he was he there's an interview with him in the back of the book it's like his it's, bio is longer than the bio of the author the author gets done so dirty in yeah. this book. His name is not on the cover. His name is not on the title page. That is crazy. The yeah. Only, you do have to really go looking for it. The only evidence is that the spine says Lorangis, which makes you think it's like a publishing house. <laughs> and the title page says M Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. I yeah, I I do disagree though. I don't think I don't think the interview was for the book, largely because he gets asked a question about the significance of the color red which is very prominent in the film, but I don't really think gets made much of a big deal of in the book. Mm -hmm. Great point. If at all, which makes me think it's like an interview for something else. I mean, that's honestly to add pages probably, right? Probably. (laughs) Like it's such a short novel. I assumed that that was sort of a little extra filler. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite one is, did Cole know from the start that Malcolm was dead? The answer is yes, period. Yeah, (laughs) I thought that was cool. (laughs) I'm forgetting. In the, does he in the movie? Does he recognize that or say it? Because I know he says some dead people don't know they're alive or dead. No, but uh, okay. So a couple but things Cole I, can I want tell. to say about the twist. This is like a perfect time to to do this, which is <laughs> okay. Cole's monologue about him seeing dead people is really well performed. Like it's really gripping. But the text of it in the movie and the book is so obviously M. Night just being like, these are the exact circumstances I need for this twist to work. Because it's like his writer brain going, the kid sees dead people. 
okay, so Bruce Willis is dead. But wait, wouldn't he see the other dead people? So the next thing mm-hmm. he says without prompting is like, they can't see each other. Yeah. <laughs> and how does he know this? Has he had like six ghosts sitting in his room and he asks them if they can well, see each Well, he's friendly other? with some of them. So right. he probably mm-hmm. is like hanging with the the theater teacher who died in the fire. And he's like, hey, how about those people hanging over there? And she's like, oh, what now? Yeah. Um, and what's their unfinished business? Those hanging people. They were unjustly hung. Yeah, that's going to be hard to help. <laughs> Why can't they get of off of the them. gallows and come ask a question or something? <laughs> they just seem angry and they're hanging out in the corner. I can't speak to that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for it uh, in here, but the part where um, M. Night is asked about why Cole asks Malcolm if he can see the hanging people. And because he knows the dead people can't see each other and he knows Malcolm is dead. If Cole knows that ghosts can't see each other, why does he expect Malcolm to see the hanging people at the school? Now, this is like a litmus test. I'd be interested to see how you guys feel about this answer. Okay. Cole understands that, but he doesn't understand every rule of everything. He doesn't necessarily expect Malcolm to see them, but he yearns for Malcolm to see what he sees. He goes, you know, maybe you can see them if you are just quiet. None of his family and friends can see them either. But in Cole's head, maybe he wouldn't be so isolated, a freak, if they could. Which, how do you feel about that answer? That works for me. That makes sense to me. He's only a a kid. Yeah, and he really wants someone to see what he sees. Yeah, there's there's Mm. no real reason why he wouldn't, why he would kind of have this sort of very rigid set of rules where as a kid, you're just like learning so much stuff that you thought was true actually turns out not to be or mm-hmm. turns out to be more complicated than that it kind of makes sense to me that a kid would sort of try their luck do you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i just find it has weird like a special relationship too right yeah. like malcolm is special mm-hmm. so maybe it's his best friend ghost. i just find it odd when it's like right next to him laying out the rules it's like the same scene that's why i just find it a little strange mm. i do like the laying out the rules thing that like i agree with you that that is is clearly in retrospect him like doing the work of setting up the twist yeah. of but yeah. again that's that like that uh you know the acrobatics that i find so fun to to see in this story mm-hmm. you know like it is okay. like it's it's well done as a person who believes in ghosts mm-hmm. um those rules also don't feel like out of left field for what we think ghosts experience yeah you know yeah. i don't think any one of those rules is something that you're like whoa no other ghost and no other thing has been like that right. like it still right. fits no, it's into the, it's not a similar from ghost a version of ghosts that yeah exactly like we're familiar with makes sense like tracks that ghosts are trapped in their own little world that they can't see other ghosts they can't see outside of their own perspective because they're like so wrapped up in their ghostliness and they don't know they're dead oh, i'd hate to be a ghost Trust. in this book this is like a un this is a bad <laughs> ghosthood of like different versions of ghosts you don't want to be a ghost in the sixth sense <laughs> have you guys seen uh, a ghost story the the um david what's his name movie david lowry movie yeah, from a few years ago there's a wonderful yeah. moment in it where so uh, the the protagonist died uh in like a medical setting and 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 the the ghost sheet that you wear is like the one that you died under and so he stands up and he's wearing a white sheet the whole movie and there's a wonderful moment where he looks out the window at another house and there's someone a ghost with a floral print because they like died <laughs> on their bed. I like that. 
Yeah, that is such a nice. specific rule. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Speaking, uh, Annie, of what you were saying about being a child and um, sort of knowing that you don't know things. Mm. Uh, did you guys have this experience where the, I felt as a, as a kid that secrets were kept from me? And I, I, when like the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus were revealed to be fraudulent, I felt very lied to. And then when I got the sex talk, I felt very lied to because that was just like an aspect of reality I didn't know about. Mm. Uh, and then me personally, I was like born with a brain tumor and, and I was kind of a hypochondriac. So my parents didn't tell me until I was like 12. So mm. I had this like, I had this, you know, triple hit of like, here's more truth about the world. And I think I was like 25 before I realized that nothing more was being held from me. And I had the full <laughs> knowledge of adults. <laughs> yeah. The only thing you're missing now is what it's like to die, which none of us For know sure. until we do it. Yeah. For only sure. And, and I, I, I dated someone once who insisted that no one knows what it's like to die, even the dead, because they only know what dying is like. Okay. And I assume that she didn't believe in ghosts or the afterlife then. Uh, yeah, I think so. That's <laughs> okay. why I, okay. um, <laughs> I mean, Bruce Willis doesn't remember dying, right? If you if you're a ghost in the sixth sense, do you do you have clear memories of how you died? I feel like they're mostly like, oh, I'm, oh, I don't know, like they seem confused. I don't know. Yeah, I mean the the that, moment when he dies, which is not in the book, but is in the movie. I don't believe it's in the book, but it's like watching he, it this time. It was very, very like. I don't know, it like really hit me in a new way where he's just like, I think it's fine actually, it doesn't even hurt. And then he dies. Mm. <laughs> um, hmm. like, yeah, yeah, funny can... enough though, the, the, the little girl does know how she died and she's pretty apt in exactly mm-hmm. what needs to be done, which mm-hmm. maybe that's like the most not playing by the rules that the rules have been set out part. Mm. Cause you sort of think, right, like, if all of these adults are so confused about how they died, how does this, you know, uh, little seven-year-old sort of have a full wherewithal of kind of like, okay, I was being poisoned. All right, here's what's happening next. Here's what I need to do. Maybe maybe that's good for the story, but actually doesn't really make much sense with what we know of ghosts in this movie. Hmm. Well, it seems like she was about to figure it out, right? her death is so right? drawn out, as opposed to, like, most of the ghosts are sort of, like, that's fast true. deaths, mm-hmm. accidents, yeah. and... But she also set up the camera to film her mom, right? So, like, she was investigating, like, this was, this is her unfinished business, right? Or did I misinterpret that? I don't think so. I think she set up the the camera to film her little puppet plays. Oh, and as a ghost, she knows. Okay. Yeah, that does sort of break the rule. Right, because, yeah, the camera was just still on when she went back to bed. So she has this, like, wisdom in afterlife that she didn't have when living i think about that all the time like when we think of people dying like you know people we like loved but grew apart from or whatever it's weird that in order to see the afterlife as like a peaceful thing we have to assume that they've changed in the ways we want them to do you know what i mean like if you like have like a an estranged sister and you love her, but you guys don't talk or whatever. And then your sister dies. And then you think about like her in the afterlife. And you're like, oh, you know, I bet she gets it now. Or I bet we are like at peace. Or I bet she knows that I always loved her. You're like imagining the person has changed in ways you hope reality or like 
consciousness trends towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. And that's kind of what this story is about, right? Is like, he has to become, is this a stretch? He has to become the, the husband he wasn't in life, you know? He has to like evolve in order to in order to be at peace in order to move on totally yeah, totally i, I mean works. the flip side is like insane to imagine right like to imagine that like your grandfather passed away and he's like still mad at you for wasting your life yeah because <laughs> then that's yeah, that it, i feel like that's part of what's so powerful about ghosts is like then if he was clinging to that that's why he, he got to be a ghost you know like it's letting go of those those burdens i guess is the thing do we think that by these rules of this movie and book that a ghost can pass on without ever knowing they were a ghost? Yeah, they can finish their business. Could could Malcolm have passed on without having the realization about the wedding ring? Yes, I, I think, think like mm. expand. <laughs> well, like, I I think you know. Um, just from we only really see it from one one character's perspective but it seems important to me right that bruce willis does realize that he's dead because it's sort of what gives him the push the the impetus to kind of say everything that he he needed to say um and he wouldn't have been able to do so had he thought that there was some kind of acrimony going on between him and his wife that she was bitter or angry at him or all the rest mm. of it. But I think, you know, it, it, it's his final realisation, essentially, um, that, yeah, that, that he's dead. Um, and it, so just from that, if we take that as a case study and project it out, then that sort of seems like it must be part of the moving on process. You know, uh, I'm dead. What is it I need to do? I think. Should we? Can we? Would it be interesting to go through the the ghosts and like what their what's their thing? There's the yeah. there's the there's Malcolm Bruce Willis, uh, and yeah. then the I, girl. Who else? If I could say, because yeah. I Annie, I think that's a very compelling argument, and I think for Bruce Willis, it is important that he realizes he's dead and that she's not mad at him. She's sad. Like I told, yes, for him. I wonder if it's different because like there's the little boy with the gun. Let me show you where my dad keeps his gun. Where like the book makes a point to say like Cole says, okay, you can show me the gun and maybe you should get rid of it. And that closes the boy's business, which I don't think has an, a, an inherent, you need to understand that you died aspect to it. Mm. I don't know. Is that what happened in the book? He, he just looked at the gun and they threw it away. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Let me what is, see if I can find that text. That seems so. un, like unclear, unfinished business. Yeah, I don't totally understand that one. Yeah, but why does the little boy want to throw away the gun? I don't... Mm. It almost suggests that the little boy just didn't get to fully gloat about the gun <laughs> when living. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, finally I got to show it to another little kid. I am released. <laughs> it kind of comes oh, across that like way, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did find that like a quite a quite a curious bit of clunkiness there. Um, yeah, he says the the woman the woman who um, has her wrists slashed and says you can't hurt me anymore. <clears throat> what she wants to do is talk, right? 
He can't really help her in any other way. She just wants to be listened to. Um, yeah, hard to say if that, that needs to that needs a self-knowledge of being dead. Possibly just so you're like, who is this little boy that I'm talking to? It's like, oh, I'm your, your medium. Why um, do the ghosts have so much, the ones that aren't Bruce Willis, why do they have so much less tact? Is it because they've been <clears throat> ghosts for longer and they're losing their marbles? But that little girl can't have been too long, I assume. Right, but she is also quite gentle in the way that she approaches him. Like, she's not, like, attacking him. Yeah. But his unfinished business Whereas, is needing to bond with and help a child. So, like, it does make sense that he's, yeah. you know. He also was literally a child psychiatrist, which probably does give you, like, a little bit of a sense of, uh, you know, how to talk to kids and um, things like that, which possibly... Oh, I forgot he was a child psychologist because Philadelphia is lousy with them. I Isn't mean, there that line in the book it's where it's like... another piece of, like, good writing, where, like, <laughs> because he's a child psychiatrist, we set that up, he approaches Cole in a specific way, he isn't scary in a ghost way, his anger is internalized because he is still in the mindset of being a child psychologist, and you're like, check, great! Mm, yeah. I'm happy with that, but I, I do just want to point out there's some line in the book where he, Larangis, uh, asserts that Philadelphia has more child psychotherapists than they can deal with. And it's like, really? <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny the mayor gave the him an down. award also. That's like, I, I, I bet that happens, I guess, but I've never seen like <laughs> Philadelphia's hero, child psychologist Malcolm Crow. It's, it's kind of funny. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And if he had... Uh, survived the shooting. I wonder if they would have hired him. Like right after he got the award, he gets shot by a patient he failed, and it'd be like all over the news. <laughs> it probably was over the news. That's probably how he yeah. uh, what reminded Vincent. Yeah, right. But he wasn't actually hired. That's the point. Hired by who? Oh, well, the family. By the family. I'm saying that in the in what we're led to believe is the reality until the twist. Tony Collette saw on the news like this supposedly great psychotherapist was shot by a patient who hates him. And was like, I still need him. Yeah, I still that's why that she doesn't make him a bad psychiatrist. Yeah, lower his rate. <laughs> his rate dropped like crazy. <laughs> uh, so I think it's time for us to talk about my favorite section of any novelization. The, the glossy photos. Oh, the yeah. The photos yeah. are so good. This is a nice uh, physical book. We've got very, like beautiful glossies with also just... Uh, Great captions. <laughs> so the first one is just Cole, I think, in his tent. Yes. And it says, Cole Seer is haunted by a dark secret, colon. He is visited by ghosts. True. Just, you know. Really <laughs> Where um, is the lie? <laughs> <laughs> so the next picture is Cole and Malcolm. I, You know, in his... Actually, the picture, I think, is from the stairwell with the hanging people. But the yeah, caption is, is yeah. from earlier... I was thinking Cole tells Dr. Malcolm Crow, you're nice, but you can't help me. God, that's before. I just like, Haley Joel Osment is so good. He's just crushing it in this movie. He's so unbelievably good in this, and he's so unbelievably good in AI. I think about him getting left in the woods all the time when my dog's misbehaving. His face is just so <laughs> sad. Like the slope of his eyes, his little mouth. It's just like, oh. He's, he's also mm. great in Forrest Gump. He's in Forrest Gump? He's little he's, Forrest yeah. Gump. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that movie in 20 years. Oh. Um, I'm also now realizing this this book includes a character who is a child actor who's an asshole. Um, but that's kind of funny. Is that <laughs> yeah. in the movie, too? Yeah. That's like, yeah. oh, you're yeah. making a movie with a child yeah. actor, and you're like, huh. <laughs> I think it's funny when um, 
Cole is being angry about, not angry, but he's being like spiteful about how much of a jerk the actor kid is. In the in the book, he describes the commercial, and he's like, he's acting all sad. Then he takes the cough syrup, and miraculously, he's just throwing the frisbee the next day. And it's like, you know, this is like, there's no like global pandemic happening at the time of this movie. Like, cough syrup can basically just cure you in a day. <laughs> John, you want to take us to the next photo? Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me because this is the Latin one. But yeah, uh, he, this is, um, we see Haley Joel. Uh, he's looking at his toy soldiers. Uh, they're on, it looks like a, some kind of wrought iron fence, maybe. And the caption is, uh, De profundis clamo ad te domine. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Cole recites the mass for the dead with his toy soldiers. Um, yeah, that's good. It's a nice, nice shot. Now that is not in the film. That is no. uh, the, the part where he talks about how the one person died and won't be going home to his sick wife. Uh, that is not in the, in the film, which is, I think, maybe a good call. It's an interesting part of the book, but it just adds a layer of sadness onto something that's already so, I don't know, dire. Paul has a lot of ghosts in his life, like a lot. He has, like, the priest who teaches his Latin... He has those two Vietnam soldiers who teach him about war stuff, and he plays his soldier mm-hmm. games with them. Like, he has, like, consistent people in his life who are simply dead. Yeah. It's a hard way to grow up. <laughs> All right, so this next photo, uh, it's a picture of Tony Collette, Haley Joel, sitting on what looks like, a, I don't know, a wall or something outside. And it says, in quotes, you know, you can tell me things if you need to. Lynn, Cole's mom is desperate to find out what's tormenting him. Pretty what a simple. beautiful photograph where they're like bathed in like warm light. Yeah, the lighting is nice. Lighting. It does look like it's like from a, a, a clothing catalog. Cough syrup commercial. Family photographer. <laughs> okay, I might pick this one because uh, I think it's like such a lovely scene in the in the film. Uh, but it's the picture of uh, Tony Collette uh, with Cole in the car, and she's sort of straining to look at what's holding them up. But as we saw from the trailer, we in fact know what's holding it mm. there up. It's the traffic accident which has killed the cyclist who's right next to Cole's window. And it's just quoted with, Grandma says hi, which is where he reveals to his mother, um, essentially, that he can see the ghosts. And in order to make her believe him, he tells her um, what stuff that only her, her, only her mother could know. Mm. And I was I thought it was a very moving scene when I last saw it in the mm-hmm. film. I thought it was lovely. I really appreciate it. Also, as a reader, they um, that scene hasn't happened yet in the book. When you get to the glossy photos, uh, which you can mm. look at the glossy photos at any point in your reading experience, but I did them, you know, as I, where they were physically. Um, and uh, I like that it was like, oh, that's then they tease it a little bit, but they don't explain it because uh, then uh, yeah, mm. it was a nice scene. Same with the the one Same below. Is the, uh, yeah, I was going to say that, John. That it's. Bruce Willis looking at the door to the basement with the red doorknob. And it says, Malcolm Crowe's moment of clarity, colon, the shocking ending. Right. So it's like, get <laughs> ready, really reader. Respectful. Get ready to be shocked. Yeah. yeah, And that's really the only one of these photos that really centers Malcolm mm-hmm. as the character. Like, the again, it's a book for kids. Every photo is basically from Cole's perspective. Right. Or a moment of Cole's life. Like, the last photo, and usually these things happen chronologically in books, but the last photo is him at the play holding up the sword as King Arthur. And it seems like you're reading like a 
beautiful little young adult book about how great it is to find your purpose. Yeah, like young King Arthur, Cole is ready to accept his purpose. <laughs> like, that's great, correct. Like, that's the arc of the movie. From picture one, he's visited by ghosts, to last picture, he's ready to accept his purpose. We get the whole arc of his character in the picture. Oh, it's like a, a mini novelization right in the middle here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little graphic novel. Like, <laughs> it seems like quite an interesting detail that you revealed, Andrew, about the author, that he actually has a background in theatre, right? And yes. I sort of wonder if that's why the theatre scenes are given such emphasis in the book, which I don't particularly remember them having in the film. Um. Perhaps it's just a, you know, it's a world that he knows and he can sort of weave it in a little bit better. I think the first play in the book where he is not the lead mm. is just fully not in the film, I want to say. The one where he crab walks out onto stage and everyone everyone applauds. It begins um, and then they cut to, did you think this play sucked big time? Gotcha, yeah. that's right. You don't that's see right. as much of it as you do in the book. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Um, what do we think about my statement that I'm about to make? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll take questions. From you. Um, how do we feel about me saying that these are the best photos we've had yet, Hannah and Andrew? Well, they're the um, highest quality, so that alone. Yes. I think they do feed into the novelization nicely, as we were just discussing. They don't give away too much, but they give you some groundwork and some you know, context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think they are the nicest pictures we've had so far. The fact that they're like on glossy photo paper already puts them miles ahead of you know, um, the ones John that are and on Annie, book the, paper. The, the bottom of the barrel that we've experienced is the Wild Wild West novelization had photos from the movie that were both in poor quality and grayscale (laughs) and just like printed on normal book that's hire an illustrator or something that is so stingy (laughs) stingy. it's not elevating the experience (laughs) (laughs) yeah if i was like a you know, thinking of watching Wild Wild West, I'd be like, I, I don't know, this movie looks like it was filmed terribly. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, if I, like when I was reading novelizations as a kid, I also wanted the glossy pictures so I could be like, look at this cute Will Smith. I love to look at him. And those pictures <laughs> did not fulfill the requirement. Did anyone else see on the back here, it says, look for The Sixth Sense Secrets from Beyond, an original book series I looked based that up, on yeah. the movie. Whoa. That, did that happen? There is a three-book series, none of them authored by Peter Larangis, uh, that it seems like the plot is that, um, is that Cole, now that Malcolm is gone, helps people like solve their problems. That either Salt other go- well, cool. one of the descriptions, Love one it. of the descriptions seemed to suggest he had become like a famous death kid, <laughs> and that living people were like, I need to like you know blah 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 with my mm. dead relative. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Are you still go to school? Is this a full time job? A little bit Doctor Sleep esque. Exactly. It's hard to imagine it not taking on like a Nancy Drew type form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the other thing I love about this book, just since we're kind of obsessing over the physical media this time around, is um, under the dedication where it has this warning about stolen books that is so just not at all relevant. <laughs> Wait, where? where? Like, PD, like PDFs exist. So oh, yeah. The, if you purchase this book without a cover, page. it has been stolen. Uh-huh. Yes, the, 
the, it was apparently a thing in 2000 to strip books of their cover. No, and... no, I have, I know what this is. Okay, go ahead. So if you're in a bookstore and you're not selling the book, instead of mailing back the whole book to the publisher, you just rip off the cover and mail off back the cover. That's like bookstore policy. That's what you do when you have leftover stock. So if you have ripped off the cover and reported to the publisher, this didn't sell, and then you sell the book without the cover, you're, you're making profit when no one else is making profit. So that's what that means. So that's Hannah's version of events. I was going to say... <laughs> you punk! I was going to say that they... That, like, uh, book perverts take the cover off because they like it better that way. But who's, who is more correct? Who can say? Um, can we talk cover while we're on the physical media? Um, yeah. yeah. I want to know, I just want to confirm with everybody. So we see on the cover the, the classic Sixth Sense image uh, silhouette of a child walking into a number six made of light. Um, I think he's actually walking towards... Us. us. Oh, is he? He's walking towards us, and his body is shaped like the negative space in a number six. Right. Uh, but then also, on my copy, and I assume this is on everyone's copy, but I want to make sure mine isn't haunted, uh, it's as if scratched with a thumbtack, there's a faint outline of the number six. Where? Where? That, I believe, is just... Oh, what? <laughs> um, okay. Can you put yourself to the screen? Yes, so yeah. Um, yeah. It's very faint. Uh, let me get... <laughs> is this not something that you did yourself, John? No, this, <laughs> this is like when you hand somebody a short. No, you can't story, quite see like, it. I found this. What do you think um, of it? Guys, everyone, hold up their. Books. Okay, wait. So I here, here. Yeah, you can see it. So see, it's kind of like engraved. Oh in, yeah. And then I assume I the person who did it was Sarah Becker, whose name is written huh. on the inside. Sarah cover. Becker, if you're so, listening to this podcast. Um, okay, cool. I was like, yeah, I was thinking like, cute. what, that's you didn't trust me to get the light, the, the, the light made the shape of a number six. You had to outline it. Um, okay, cool. Wow. I've been curious. I mean, it, it could, it could be a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I really see that. <laughs> yeah, it really actually does look a lot like a thumbs up. All right. I've got a question for everyone. Yeah. If. If you were to consider the idea of recommending this book, would you recommend it to a person who loved the movie? Would you recommend it to a person who hated the movie? Would you recommend it to a person who had never seen the movie? Hannah Blackman. I would definitely recommend it. Um, if you liked the movie, I think it really opens up the world of it in nice ways. The, the idea that, like, Vincent has a white streak and so does Cole is something that, like, is in the movie, but I had never noticed. And for to read that in the book felt, you know, like, ooh, like a fun little, that's cool. Um, so it's full of things like that that I really liked. I do think it's effectively written and moving. It moved my little heart. Um, and I would recommend it, you know, if you like the movie, read it. If you've never seen the movie, it seems like John had a good time. I think the story stands on its own feet. And it's nice to know that, like, I could give this book to a 12-year-old and it wouldn't disturb them. Maybe it would. But, like, <laughs> it's designed for all readers. They wouldn't uh, learn the word so, yeah, bullshit. Yeah, I liked it. No, and good. Correct. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. So, yeah, I would recommend that. John Goodman, you were kind of thrown to there. How did you feel <laughs> yeah. reading, reading this book, having not seen the film? Um, great. It was... Um... It definitely affected my experience that I was aware of the film, um, like that I knew the twist. Uh, but I liked that, actually. It was because I felt like I could appreciate all the little, like, oh, this has two meanings moments. Like, oh, she looked right through him, you say. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would recommend this book uh, to 
any of those people, I guess not. If someone was like, oh, I hated The Sixth Sense, then no, yeah, obviously don't read the book. But other than that, yeah, if you haven't seen it, if you have, um, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's like a little um, junior. It's an extremely quick read, uh, but it's, um, yeah, I had a fun time reading it. If you're if you're on the beach and you need uh, need something to read, read The Sixth Sense by Peter Lorangis. <laughs> Amazing. Annie <laughs> Kelly, a uh, doctor, Annie Kelly. I, I meant to, to bring this up earlier, but someone who will not be named, who I referred to as a nickname on the podcast, who was not on the podcast. Uh, let's say their name was Nicholas, <sighs> re- emailed me after an episode was released and said, please do not call me Nikki. Wow. You do not know me. <laughs> so I've been, I'm trying to be more careful with like honorifics. Trying, and to, stuff. trying to be formal. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, well, no, I would, um, I would really recommend it to someone who liked the movie, which I am. Um, I think if you find the the premise charming or compelling, uh, which I really do for this film, then I think, yeah, what Hannah said, it just fleshes it out. It plays with a little bit more of those details, um, gives you like a little bit more, yeah. Um, little bit more sort of like little side stories to them um in a way I, I i could have could have done a lot more of them um but it was also just so readable it was just so quick to read um so yeah no i would absolutely recommend to someone who liked the sixth sense um to someone who didn't like the sixth sense so i would struggle to understand that person so i uh, <laughs> uh, can't really can't really recommend anything for them absolutely andrew marco how are we feeling uh, more or less the same as everybody else. I think, you know, Sixth Sense is one of those movies that has stood the test of time. It's a good movie. And the book is a quick breeze of a read, maintains what you like about the book, adds a little bit of interiority, as books do, uh, and just, you know, it's enjoyable. I, I'd say read the book, rewatch the movie, love me some M. Night. Over me. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I think I would only recommend the book to a person who loved the movie and, and wanted to become more invested in that world. I, and this isn't a, a diss on the book, which I, I enjoyed reading. And I, I think Loran just, like I said, has like a, a real command of the arc that all the characters are going through and how they're all at different points in their own story at a given time. Um, but that being said, I, I don't know if there's like enough juice or enough gravy on this thing uh, to make it worthwhile uh, to read first as, as we force John to do or uh, to read on its own. So I would say if you're a Sixth Sense, Sixth Sense super fan, and you should be, uh, I recommend this book. Oh, this is so positive. Yeah. That's so nice. What a, what a fun way to end. Absolutely. I, I think Battleship was a little more negative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a good time too, but yeah. Yeah. Well, um, John, thank you for returning. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Can't wait to read the next one. Oh, absolutely. And you will be you know, hearing from me soon as I, I never let you go. Um, Annie, thank you so much for, for coming on to a podcast with a, a bunch of people you don't know, and also when I asked you, we had zero episodes out. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me. I thought it was a, a great premise, a great excuse to read a novelization again. Hey, Overby here, cutting in from the future. Uh, terrific host that I am. I forgot to let Annie plug her stuff again before we took off. 
So here's the deal. She is the UK correspondent for the podcast QAnon Anonymous, a podcast that I really love that has been on top of the whole QAnon phenomenon before it was also sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, a popular phenomenon in the last couple of years to, uh, to track, and they are uh, still the best at it. So definitely check out QAnon Anonymous. Uh, Annie also has her own podcast, Vaccine, The Human Story, which uh, chronicles the development and setbacks of the smallpox vaccine, which is uh, also really terrific and just an entire journey that I knew nothing about. So highly recommend both of those. And okay, back to the show. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like they're something a lot of us dabbled with in childhood, and it's like they're still out there, but... Why would you ever, you know? Because they're fun and we love it. <laughs> uh, to our listeners, uh, we we love you. And I don't know. I mean, I find myself thinking about you more and more. Don't make it weird. Um, <laughs> keep going. Roll to the I'm end. Just, I'm just speaking for myself. Um, we're recording out of order, and I honestly don't know what's next week, but please do tune in. And, uh, you know, just... Uh, just appreciate the little things. Talk to your wives. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's it. Okay. Great. Good night. Good night.